This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Anne Greenhall, Deputy Director of the Anne and John McNulty <laughs> Leadership Program, and I am here tonight with my good friends and co-host Jeff Klein, the Executive Director <laughs> of the Leadership Program, and Mike Yuseem, yeah, the Jeff, Director of the Center for Leadership <laughs> and Change Management. We've got a wonderful show tonight. We have two guests in the first hour Ingrid Fatel Lee. She's the founder of a website called The Aesthetics of Joy and author of a highly praised new book called Joyful, The Surprising Power of Ordinary Things to Create Extraordinary Happiness. And in the second hour, we're going to get another lesson on leadership from another uh, world, and that's the world of sports, where we're going to talk to Callie Brownson, offensive quality control coach with Dartmouth football. She is the first full-time female coach in Division I college football. So joy and football, I think they go together. Must be Philadelphia. <laughs> Must be Philadelphia. Well, don't go after, too far. Yeah, at least after the last game. Yeah. It's all right. We got a fast track to the division. <laughs> okay. Everything's going to be okay. All right. Well, now, speaking of joy, this is the season of joy. Coming up, Thanksgiving, on our way to Hanukkah and Christmas. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of us is having a holiday party, and that's Mike Yusin. Oh, well, and everybody's invited. <laughs> that's so good. You've all the listeners? Did you hear that? All the yeah. listeners. Uh, well, it's on the air. What was the address? Yeah. <laughs> now, now, Jeff. I, yeah. I think it's in Manitoba. <laughs> <laughs> I love your place in yeah. Manitoba. <laughs> Anyway, in principle, everybody's invited. Yeah, in principle. In <laughs> principle. Right. And a parties are a joyful event. That's right. So uh, we've. what's been going on in, in your life this week, Jeff? Uh, in my life this week? That's a great <laughs> Long question. Pause. I really thought I, I was going to have to talk about joy. Yeah. And then you, you asked me. Well. Uh, we're trying to figure – I feel like it's that point of the year where um, – you know, the semester is starting to wind down, yeah, right? Yeah. And so we have like 10-ish days of classes left. Um, right. Then we roll into finals. And, and so the energy starts to, you know, direct itself towards 2019 a little bit. That's true. So I feel like the last couple days have been starting to imagine 2019, starting to imagine what the big new things are going to be and right. wrap our heads around how we might do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well. Saturday, December 1st. Yeah, right, exactly, exactly. Uh, that means we get paid tomorrow, at least. <laughs> That's possible. That's good. <laughs> hoping. Yeah, hoping. <laughs> God, he's such an optimist. Yeah, know, really. right? Is there something, something I don't know? <laughs> he's telling you something. Yeah, apparently. Yeah. We've been well, furloughed. We, we usually make payroll around here most, yeah. most mostly. End of, yeah, mostly. Yeah. And anything high on your list this week, Mike? Uh, well, I had a very joyful week in that uh, at the end of a course that I offer in our MBA program for executives, the final work product is a paper that's uh, that's what we used to call it anyway, anyway, a digital submission that asked each of the 120 students in the in the course to write about a leader that they thought about, sometimes they've even interviewed. So the leaders that they profiled range from Nelson Mandela to Indra Nui, who was stepping Great. down as CEO mm -hmm. at uh, Pepsi. And I have to say, reading these uh, detailed, kind of almost graphic accounts of, of who these people were and what they did and what they brought to the table, uh, I am renewed, I think, in my sense of um, optimism that uh, oh, the great. world's going to be a better place. There are a lot of people out there that... I uh, think Nelson Mandela, I think in Renui, have made an amazing difference, and there are lots of people coming up behind him. So, Mike, your students' work gave you joy. They gave me a lot of joy and a <laughs> lot of insight on what really makes a difference. And what, one of the themes that came through a number of the papers, we talk a lot of, about this often in the program with our our visitors here, and that is the ability to offer up, conjure up a story, an account, mm -hmm. an arc a kind of a history of who we are and where we're going. And uh, best in class, think uh, Nelson Mandela, extremely good 
at account giving, and boy, that came through in so many of these papers. Mm. Well, Mike, you know your your mm. example is actually quite uh, pertinent to our first it guest is. and our author, who talks about a moment in her own life uh, as a student mm. with a teacher in which her work gave her instructor some joy. So why don't we bring our very first guest on the show, and she is Ingrid Fattel lee Ingrid, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's really a pleasure. It, it really is, and I, um, I had the pleasure of hearing you yesterday here on campus. You were at Wharton, and you spoke to a group of more than 150, approaching 200 students, faculty and some staff about your new book, Joyful, The Surprising Power of Ordinary Things to Create Extraordinary Happiness. So I really feel privileged and uh, extra special to be able to speak, you know, to hear you and to speak with you tonight on the show. So maybe would you start just by sharing the opening anecdote in your book? Sure. So uh, this book I often say I didn't set out to study joy. I set out to study design. And I was in my first year of design school. Uh, it was at the end of that first year, and I was at a review. And um, for design students, this is really where it all happens. We don't take tests. We don't take exams. We, we just um, lay everything that we've made out, and our professors tell us what they think. Um, and so in that moment, I had actually a panel of professors and one of the professors on the panel looked at my work and he said, "It this your work gives me a feeling of joy. <laughs> and this was, it was actually quite shocking to me because I, I you know, I had gone back to mm. design school because I really wanted to solve serious problems. I think it was in the moment, you know, it was in the, it was around um, the mid 2000s. Um, and I, you know, this is when design was really starting to get taken seriously as a tool for solving problems. And so I really wasn't thinking about joy. And then the other piece of it that was uh, this real moment of cognitive dissonance for me is that I had always thought about joy as this thing that's ephemeral. It comes from inside of us. It certainly doesn't, you know, we've spent, I think many of us grow up being taught that material things are totally incidental to our happiness and well-being. So the idea that these things that I had made could create joy was perplexing me. And I asked my professors to explain it, and none of them could. And that's really what sent me off on this journey. That's now 10 years ago. Wow. Um, but that is the beginning of the journey that became this book. So what was your first step? Then after you had this moment and you realized, you know, that this question was interesting to you, what was your first step? So the first step for me was to go to the library. Um, I think as many, you know, may, we've taught to do in school, go to the library. And what I found, you know, I, I went first to um, the section on happiness and uh, psychology and, and um, this, you know, the study of emotional well-being. And I was looking for books that might tell me about um, the relationship between our environment and our emotions and tangible mm -hmm. things and our emotions. And I couldn't find anything there. Mm -hmm. And then I went to the, um, you know, the sections on design and de design, you know, philosophy and, and sort of deeper thinking about design. And there really was nothing there either. There was actually a lot written about emotion and, and the ideas, you know, there were ideas around creating emotion, but nothing evidence-based, nothing research-based. And so mm -hmm. that, really highlighted for me that there was a gap that there, you know, that there are scientists, you know, thinking about um, the, you know, the, the world around us, mm -hmm. um, but none of that research was making it into the field of design. And on the flip side, um, designers were thinking intuitively about emotions, but they really, um, none of the sort of evidence was making it uh, across this divide. And so mm -hmm. for me, it was really about starting to close that gap. Hmm. So did you start to do your own research then, would you say? Yeah, I did. So a, a couple things started to happen. So I started to find, um, you know, scientists who were studying the relationship between the, you know, the physical world and, uh, and our emotions and well-being. And that research, I think, has been 
probably deprioritized within the field of psychology because psychology is primarily, at historically, has been a very inward-looking discipline right, focused on, right. um, you know, our attitudes, our behaviors, um, you know, and and most recently our neurochemistry, and really has not been focused on stuff. Um, and so, but there are people who are doing that research. So I started to find those studies and started to sort of gather a, a body of research. And at the same time, I was also going out and talking to people. And some of this was just incidental conversations, but I also did things like, you know, go out into the middle of Rockefeller Center on a busy lunch break and just intercept people, uh, tourists, um, you know, workers in nearby buildings and ask them about the things that brought them joy. And this research really, I think, was where the, the light bulb began to, to happen, where the light bulb began to turn on, um, is because I started to hear from people um, that certain things, you know, that made them feel joyful, I'd hear them from many different people and many different kinds of people. And uh, they were things like um, bubbles and balloons and cherry blossoms and rainbows and tree houses. <laughs> The, you know, mm-hmm. the sprinkles on your ice cream, um, these things are things that seem to cut across lines of age and gender and ethnicity. And so I began to see that there, that there were, not only could things spark a feeling of joy, but that there were certain consistent patterns. And that really, um, that, you know, digging into those patterns was what really led to, to the basis of my work. That's so good. I really appreciate your uh, thoughtful response. When I first saw the cover of your book and heard you were coming to campus, my quick thought was the work of um, Marty Seligman here and positive psychology. Um, but you've made you've made a nice point in that that work is mainly focused inward, rather than thinking so much about the relationship between the physical world and our emotional response to it. Would that be a yeah, fair? Yeah, totally. And I think that work, um, the work of Marty Seligman and many other positive psychologists has, have, has really been foundational to the work I've done because I think they have set a, a, a they have the shift that they have made, of course, is to help us recognize that within psychology, we don't just have to be thinking about um, addressing illness and addressing, right. you know, conditions, but actually, how do we get to a state of thriving? Right. And I think that really has been formative for me when I think about environments. What I'm really thinking about is, as, you know, as designers, if there's a serious problem we're trying to, I'm trying to solve here, it's how do we create environments in which people can thrive? Right. Um, and and the connection, I think what they, what, the, you know, the work of the these sort of leading thinkers in positive psychology, what they've done is, is highlight the connection between joy and thriving. Right. And that when we feel a sense of joy, it is a signal to a deeper state of thriving within our bodies and our minds. Yeah, very good. Well, let me be sure to bring Jeff and Mike into the conversation. So I'm going to hand the baton to Jeff. Uh, thanks for joining us tonight, Ingrid. And I am, uh, I'm a big fan of joy. I should, <laughs> this is true. I, I should just start. I out can there. vouch yeah. for that. That's right. true. <laughs> to put it on the record here. Yeah, 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 yeah that well, is true. It, it's <laughs> funny. I was, I was actually on a. Um, not sure what made me think of this exactly, uh, but I was on a trek with. With Mike, who's here sitting next to me, a uh, number of years ago, I think it's back in 2010, and we one of the questions that we were given as we were uh, hiking was to talk with a partner about you know a, a role or a purpose that you tend to play within groups. Um, and after a, a fair amount of kind of silly banter, which um, <laughs> did serve my purpose in, in the end, I realized that one of the things I like to do within groups is to create mirth that's right? true and so um functioning as a as a mirth maker and and so i i i know a lot a lot of the work here has been around the aesthetics of joy and and the way that we're experiencing joy in the world around us um i wonder if if you also delved into the question of the role of you know kind of human relationship in in both creating and sustaining joy it's so important. I think I, as a designer, of course, my focus is on the 
tangible. And and I think one of the reasons I focus there is because I think that's the biggest gap. Um, you know, there is a whole field of social psychology that does, you know, talk about um, the importance of relationships. And, and, and of course, we now know how important that is, that, you know, the former Surgeon General Vivek Murthy will say that um, that being socially isolated is equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. But that's how bad, you know, that, that's how important social, good, social, healthy social relationships are to our sense of thriving. Um, I think it's it's certainly true that um, human relationships are one of the the most profound and important sources of joy in our lives. And so the way that I tend to think about it, it just knowing that that is just a truth, right, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, is that uh, I think about how can we use design to enhance that um, or how can we use our surroundings to enhance that. So, for example, um, looking at the way I'm really interested in the phenomenon of synchrony um, and the way that moving or um, playing music um, in concert actually has physiological effects. Not only do those activities bring a lot of joy, mm-hmm. um, but they also um, influence our sense of uh, unity, co- cohesion, um, our willingness to, you know, in, in studies, um, people who move together in a coordinated beat or um, make music together, uh, actually not only do their um, their heart rate, mm-hmm. heart rates and their brain waves start to synchronize, but they also tend to um, be more uh, generous, more likely to sacrifice their own, you know, own gain for the needs of the group. And, um, and even sometimes they perform better on cooperative tasks. And so I think what I'm interested in is how can aesthetics influence us on a deep and unconscious level um, and make our relationships better. Just let me jump in for just a second and remind everyone that you are listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. And we have the pleasure of speaking with Ingrid Fatel-Lee, author of Joyful, The Surprising Power of Ordinary Things to Create Extraordinary Happiness. And Jeff, you were in the middle of conversation with Ingrid, so let me hand the baton back to you. Right, sure. Um, <clears throat> thank you for that that commentary, Ingrid, on, on really the role that setting can play in, uh, I guess, either in, in promoting or in amplifying some of these human qualities. And, and I'll tell you, even as um, as you were talking and I, w- I was reflecting back upon these aesthetics of joy, which you've you know both identified and then described throughout the book, um, you know, many of them when, when I and, and maybe it's even all of them, I I'm kind of in a self-reflective place right now. Um, but when I think about energy and harmony and surprise and celebration and renewal, um, they're very relational qualities to me, right? And, and when I think about the, um, the relationships I have, which have these aesthetics present within them, um, they tend to be relationships, which also create joy. So there, there's something really universal, and I, I, I want to get back to the design side of this. Um, uh, but but I, I did just want to point that out, that they, they feel really familiar at, a, um, at an intuitive and relational level. Right. I think that's right. And I think you can certainly think about harmony, for example, yeah. as a social thing, as well as a visual thing. Um, as a visual concept. So I think, agreed, like many of these things are, and, and, you know, freedom, I talk a lot about freedom um, in the book, and, you know, I think the feeling of freedom also can have a very interpersonal quality, um, especially as a value that we often hold um, together in groups. Um, So it makes a lot of sense to me. Ingrid, this is Mike, and thank you for coming on our program, and thank you for writing just a wonderful book. Uh, The title, as Anne has already Mm -hmm. said, is Joyful, and the last three words are Creating Extraordinary Happiness. So we're we're all for both (laughs) of those states. (laughs) And I'm going to pick up on one particular aspect. It's got a pragmatic uh, question at the end. One of your chapters, I'm just going to name it, a number it, and not name it for the moment, is Chapter (laughs) 8. And in that, you describe uh, a visit to Iceland. And uh, by the way, you mentioned that only 5% of Icelanders 
claim to have seen elves outright. I want to check that out. In this room of three, <laughs> what, what's our percentage? You've, have you seen an elf, uh, Anne? I have not, but I used to believe in poltergeist. Oh, well, there it is. I think that we'll, <laughs> <laughs> we'll give you 50% of is that. Is that all right? Yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, no, not outside my obsession with uh, Tolkien. No. Uh, Tolkien, oh, okay. exactly. I this think, is true, yeah, too. Yeah, Ingrid, I think, I think our percentage in this room is actually pretty high. High, yeah. Uh, but, but that said... Uh, you describe a trip to the west of Reykjavik, the capital there, and on the return, it's dark. Your driver suddenly stopped the car and said, we've got to get out. And you said, well, what's up? Is it a flat tower? And he said, just take a look up in the sky. And, of course, it's the northern lights. Oh, great. <laughs> and here's the line I want to quote to then lead to this pragmatic question. You say, I didn't find any elves in Iceland, at least so far. <laughs> But I did find plenty of magic. I really like the concept of magic. It's the title of your chapter. This is Chapter 8. So let's pull that one apart. Uh, when When is it magic and how does that make us happy? Yeah, so I, I first started getting interested in magic because I, I began to feel that um, there's a lot of magic in childhood. And you see magic swirling together with everyday life. Um, you know, we're, we're given permission to believe in things like Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy when we're children. And, and so we have um, freedom to, to experience the world in a magical way. And then at some point we feel we have to put that aside. And when I read that in Iceland they really don't put it aside, um, that 58% of the population believes in elves, and that um, actually, you know, there are many parts of the culture where they will actually disrupt things because of perceived interference from the elves. So, for example, um, in a construction project, um, e e as you drive around Iceland, you sometimes find roads that curve in a strange way around boulders. And, and what will have happened in these instances is that um, during construction, a bulldozer will break down, and people will say that it is due to the, the elves, um, that, you know, they're elves who live in this habitat. Um, they live in this boulder, or they live in this space, and so someone will be sent in to negotiate with the elves, and <laughs> then the road will be moved, hmm. um, or the boulder will be moved. Um, but somehow, something will happen to, you know, to appease and to diffuse the situation. And this is, you know, a real thing that happens frequently in Iceland. And so knowing that, I, I wanted to understand what is it about that culture that allows magic to thrive even in adulthood. And when I visited the place, it became immediately clear to me that this landscape is unlike any other landscape. You know, you have, you have the northern lights dancing overhead. You have steam wafting out of snow-covered fields um, due to the geothermal energy. You have geysers, you have waterfalls. Some of the waterfalls have rainbows that are, are almost permanently over them. And so the world does begin to feel magical. And what I realized in talking to a, a folklore expert there, you know, he put it very beautifully, he said, the elves are the personification of the power that lives in the landscape. It's mm, great. And <laughs> Yes, and, and this idea that, you know, some landscapes have more invisible power, uh, you know, that sort of bubbles up to the surface. Um, I mean, all our landscapes have invisible power in them. You know, even just our homes have power that travels through wires. I mean, it's magic that we can turn on a faucet and water comes out. Um, mm -hmm. So we do have magic embedded <laughs> yeah, in it. It just great. becomes mm -hmm. mundane. But I think, you know, my awareness that, the wind, you know, is a, is a form of, of magic and a, of power that lives in the landscape. And we find magic when we get close to this uh, ineffable kind of power. And, Ingrid, just to cite an example that you have in the same chapter of how real the world of magic can be, I think you describe a number of stones that had different numbers on each one. Because after all, if you're an elf living there, you want your address to be visible. So they've yes. <laughs> right. They've numbered so, some boulders actually have ha house numbers so, um, to so. acknowledge, right? That yeah. these are members of society. And what I realized actually is that this is a it's a form of environmentalism that manages to you know the 
the elves are said to live in the wildest places. And so the fact yeah. that um, they will make their presence known um, or that, you know, the society will have a moment of recognition of the elves' needs um, is a way of respecting the, this powerful landscape and protecting yeah. the places where the elves and where the magic is most likely to dwell. Ingrid, we're heading for a break in a few minutes, so I've got, a, uh, I guess, a question with the longer answer that may have to bridge over the break. Sure. But the the book is written not only to understand how the world is seen through the eyes of people like those living in Iceland, but also to draw from them ideas for us to make more joy in the workplace or at home or in our lives. And just a, a quick question. We'll maybe pick up on this more after the break. If you are looking to create more magic in the world we are in, maybe at home, maybe in your community, perhaps at work. Taken from your Iceland experience and others that you refer to in the book, how do we go about creating that, quote, magic? So I think about this in terms of how do we surface the invisible forces that are around us all the time. And one example I really love is from um, the newly rebuilt Sandy Hook School in Connecticut um, after the mass mm. shooting there in 2012. They rebuilt the school, and they really rebuilt it with an eye toward joy. Um, and the architects, the Gauls Plus Partners, um, collaborated with um, a mobile maker named Tim Prentiss to create these mobiles that uh, flutter like leaves uh, when the air vents, you know, when the when the air turns on um, from the air vents, and I think this is a, this is a wonderful example. There are all these hidden forces in our immediate surroundings, and how can we use um, design to actually surface those? So that's one example. Great example. Um, yeah, let, uh, Ingrid, I'm going to break in. I need to hand the baton yeah. back to <laughs> okay. Anne, who's going to take us on I break. Will take but that, it. We'll come back to that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Ingrid. And we are going to take a short break, but. Stay with us. Don't go away. After the break, we're going to talk a little bit more with Ingrid about her book, Joyful, The Surprising Power of Ordinary Things to Create Extraordinary Happiness. And Ingrid, just so you can think about it a little bit, we will uh, pivot a bit to the workplace. And since the title of the show is Leadership in Action, even think about leadership with respect to joyfulness. So stay tuned. This is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Leadership in Action on SiriusXM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Ann Greenhall. I'm here with Jeff Klein and Mike Useem. And we have the privilege and the pleasure of interviewing our guest, Ingrid Fatel-Lee, author of Joyful, The Surprising Power of Ordinary Things to Create Extraordinary Happiness. Ingrid, before the break, uh, we promised that we would pivot a little bit towards the workplace and towards leadership. But just as a little setup before we do, um, Mike mentioned your eighth chapter about magic, and Jeff mentioned some titles of your earlier chapters, and I'm just going to rattle them off for a moment. Energy, abundance, freedom, harmony, play, surprise, transcendence, magic, celebration, and renewal. So I'm just kind of curious how you went about organizing your book in this way. You know, why those particular topics and why in this order? So when I first started that research to ask people about the kinds of things that brought them joy, I began to notice that there were certain visual patterns. And as I looked, I, I really, I organized it based on those visual patterns. So the first chapter, Energy, is really about um, color and light and the way that those things influence us. Um, and when I started to look at color and light and why they bring us joy, I realized that there's a deep connection to energy. So, mm -hmm. for example, and this is a good segue to work, um, that, you know, when people, when in a cross-cultural study of work environments, um, people who work in more colorful, bright offices are more alert, more confident, friendlier, and more joyful than people working in drab spaces. And, and recent research with color suggests that there is a connection between 
saturation, intensity of color, and our, our level of arousal, right? Um, and so there's a physiological effect. So um, color, and of course, light is, is deeply connected to our circadian rhythms, which balance our energy levels. So light and color are very deeply connected to energy. They are energizing. Um, and so each chapter is related to not just a set of aesthetic elements, but the deeper um, quality of joy that they elicit within us. Mm, that's great. So as managers uh, and leaders for <laughs> listeners in our in our audience, what might be some just I'm, I'm not going to say tips, but things to think about as you're considering the space in which you and your colleagues work? Well, one of the things that I noticed when I first started this work is that certainly workplaces um, and many other places that we spend a lot of our time often are devoid of these joyful aesthetics. So um, we often work in very beige um, and gray spaces. Work environments, I think, are designed to be serious. Uh, that's what we think of. We try to design serious spaces. Um, and they tend to leave out the joy. We often work in cubes, uh, right? <laughs> our, cu- our offices are structured in cubicles. They don't have many of the playful round shapes um, that are so, you know, common in uh, in, in joyful things, right? In, in childhood, we see lots of round, joyful shapes. Um, we don't see those in work environments. Um, so I think, um, and, and nature is another thing that's often really missing from, uh, from work environments and from many other kinds of environments where work takes place and also other activities like hospitals, yeah. nursing homes, um, you know, government buildings. Um, so there are uh, urban centers. So I think really um, it's it's a question of two things. One, um, understanding that we have this belief that seriousness um, is the, the the joy is not serious, right? That joy is for our leisure time. It's a distraction. It's not um, connected to serious work. And so I think the first thing is we have to overcome that bias. We have to recognize, actually, um, that research shows that joy often is um, a precursor to, uh, to success. Um, and that, you know, for example, um, you know, research out of the University of Warwick shows that um, people are up to 12% more productive when they're in a joyful state of mind, that um, joyful negotiators, uh, <laughs> studies show that they reach more win-win agreements. Um, and that um, joyful doctors, a very uh, seminal Alice Eisen study shows that uh, joyful doctors um, come to a correct diagnosis more quickly um, than uh, doctors in sort of a neutral state of mind. So the idea that we should separate joy from our workspaces, I think, um, is outdated. And so first, so the first step is really we have to give ourselves permission to bring some of these things back into the environment. Oh, so good. So, and I have to say, as uh, Jeff and Mike know, we are on the uh, brink of doing a little bit of renovation in our sweet, sweet G21. And uh, we may have to put the brakes on, Jeff, because so far we're adding (laughs) cubes. (laughs) We could be adding circles rather than squares. (laughs) We could be uh, bringing in more plants. (laughs) And we could also be uh, using more vibrant colors. So (laughs) I'm taking away a lot from this conversation. Jeff, do you want to chime in? (laughs) Well, Ingrid, I'm... Just curious what advice you would have. Um, so I'll go, Anne went from like what to think, think about. about. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and, and you have this really practical toolkit, um, you know, at, at the end of the book that, that gives uh, gives readers a chance to, you know, really go through a, a, a structured process. Um, but, you know, at kind of a fundamental level, like what question would you ask me or would you ask, you know, an organizational leader um, to even assess, like, what the status quo looks like? Um, well, I think that assessing the status quo usually is a, 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 a for me, is, is a visual mm-hmm. experience, right? So it's less about, and actually, usually the way that this happens is that I have a conversation with someone or I go in for a meeting and they say, we're, I'm so sorry, 
Um, and that once they read the book, they say, I'm so sorry. It doesn't look anything like what's in your book. You know? <laughs> right. So usually it's preceded by an apology, and I'm like, I'm not here to judge you. You know, the, the, the goal is really, I think there are two things. One is, what kind of work are you doing? Because I do think that, you know, there's fine-tuning here depending on the kind of, there are some baseline things, right? I think plants are never a bad idea. I think more natural light is just has been shown time and time again to be super important to productivity, to well-being, to alertness, um, and also even to, you know, people being able to sleep better at night. The research shows mm-hmm. that employees who have sunnier deaths sleep better at night and are more active during the workday. So there are certain things that are foundational. So I would be looking at um, what are the fixed constraints of a space, um, because obviously if you don't have a lot of windows, you're not going to be able to, you know, increase the natural light. But there are things that you can do, um, you know, to, to supplement. Um, you can add broad-spectrum lighting. You can um, change the spaces. So with light, for example, you can change the spaces that are low located um, closest to the most natural light. So many offices, you know, natural light and windows are a perk reserved for senior um, management. It's a, it's a thing you, you get as a, as a treat, as opposed to if we actually think of the environment as something that supports well-being and um, productivity among workers, then really we should think about these things as assets that should be distributed um, more in a more egalitarian way throughout the workforce. And so you might actually consider instead of putting luxurious corner offices in the, um, in the, uh, next to the windows, you might actually change that and think about putting, um, a common space, um, or, a, a working, you know, a hot desking area so that people can get exposure to that. So I think there, you know, there are things like that. There are baseline things. And then I think there are things that relate to the type of work you want to do. So, Thinking about, um, for example, the fact that um, research shows that when we have a little bit of elevation, that this can um, help us uh, gain perspective. That when people move up in physically in space, even just the, the height of a staircase, that they're more likely to take a big picture view on problems than get bogged down in the details. So I would be thinking if I had, you know, if you have the, the opportunity to have any elevation in your space, even if it's just a treehouse that you build in your <laughs> space, um, but that's a really good place to do that kind of visionary thinking work. Um, you know, versus, uh, you know, research that shows that, you know, fluid movements um, enhance creativity. So I would be thinking about curves in spaces where you'd want to encourage that kind of creativity. So I think there are two levels to the way that you can think about this. No, that's that's really helpful and <laughs> also so helpful that we we will have a recording of you suggesting exactly. to me that I build a treehouse in Jeff, our offices. I know exactly like, where yeah, you're putting right? it. Right? Like, I it's do. Perfect. It is yeah. perfect. <laughs> treehouse. I can see right. it now. Mike? Well, we need the tree to begin with, but that, that's for another details, day. Details, details. Uh, Ingrid, I'm going to pick up on what Jeff has already alluded to. At the back of the book, you have a joyful toolkit. Yes. which I found very pragmatic and practical. And you open the chapter with a quote that each of us is an artist. Mm. And uh, I'm personally artistically challenged, so I'm going to ask you for a little <laughs> help here. Um, and a couple pages into it, you uh, give uh, people like me a, a kind of a workbook to use to change the way you might take a vacation or design an office, as we've just been talking, or even planning a dinner party. Mm-hmm. So uh, just to make it very pragmatic on the home front, then I'll come back to the office. Uh, picking up on, let's go back to this one term of magic or this chapter on magic. And in the workbook, you've got four kind of defining elements. that uh, the, the setting needs to be ethereal, Wondrous, intriguing, and enchanting. I'd like to make my next dinner party more magical. (laughs) (laughs) So give me some guidance. How how would I do that? I love it. Well, I I wanted to, before I answer the question, I want to come back to your point about um, this idea that everyone is an artist. Because I think what where this comes from for me is this idea that first, each of us has a sphere of influence where we have agency over our environment. And it may only be, you know, a room in a, in your, in a college dorm. Um, it may, it may be a corner of a room. It might be 
um, you know, the clothes that you wear. It might be a party that you're throwing. But each of us has a space in which we can create joy. And I think that we have been conditioned to see our spaces as things that should conform to certain standards of taste. And so I think that has, to some extent, estranged us from our natural from the natural connections that we have between our environment and our emotions. We filter everything through the lens of, but is mm-hmm. this right? Or does this look good? Or is this going to impress people? And instead of tuning back in, so my goal with the toolkit as a whole is really to help people, their exercises to really help you tune back in to this connection, which is innate within all of us. We all evolved with the same set of senses and the same connection between our senses and our emotions. So with all that said, if, you know, if you want to make something more magical, um, I think it really comes back to thinking about how to bring in some of these um, sort of enchanting invisible elements. Um, mm. So, uh, you know, this probably wouldn't work for a dinner party because the sun would have set. But one of the thing that I love to do is hang a prism in a sunny window because as the sun passes through, um, it will scatter rainbows throughout a room. You can do it actually um, with a chandelier, with a light. You know, any kind of um, light source with a with a prism will scatter rainbows. And it's that sort of intense, it's that magical thing where white light is just broken open to reveal the color spectrum. Um, that you know is one example. I think using optical illusions is another way to create magic. Um, and any kind of um, trompe l'oeil or, um, you know, any kind of, uh, uh, you know, illusion, um, art- artistic illusions um, can, you know, create that feeling of joy. And you can incorporate that into decor or, um, or the, you know, the table settings. You know, they're often op art style things that can bring that sense of magic in. Um, mirrors, again, I've, I've mentioned mirrors um, for their uh, ability to reflect light, but mirrors also um, can create that sort of sense of magic as well. So good, really. You've got me. You've got me thinking here, Ingrid. So um, I want to just remind everyone first before I launch into another question that you are listening to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Radio Channel One Thirty Two. Mike Yusim, Jeff Klein, and I, Ann Greenhall, are speaking tonight with Ingrid Fatel Lee, and we're speaking to her about her book Joyful. So, Ingrid, I'm going to pivot just a little bit and ask you about, you know, sort of what what enabled you to get to this point to write this book. I know a little bit about your biography. You worked at IDEO before you went off on your own. Could you say a little bit about how that uh, experience informed your work? Well, what was interesting about going to IDEO is IDEO was really the dream job for me while I was in graduate school studying design. And then I presented my, I worked on this topic, on this research for my master's thesis, and I received the job offer from IDEO the same day. And so I had long thought that, you know, because my job search had taken a long time, I thought maybe I will just keep working on this and I'll, you know, I'll get some part-time job to, you know, cover my expenses and I'll really work on, on making this into a book because I, I really believed that it could be a book. And that was, you know, eight years ago. And so, and then I I got the job offer I I couldn't turn down. And IDEO was a place, you know, IDEO is a really joyful place. Um, It is, um, the, the culture is joyful, the approach to the work is joyful. And so it really gave me an opportunity to, um, hone these ideas alongside a body of people who were excited to, um, to, to hear about it, to get feedback. Um, and so that was a really helpful thing. And because I was also practicing design, mm-hmm. I got to sort of um, cross-pollinate at times. And I think, you know, one of, probably one of the most formative things for me was that my work at IDEO often consisted of going into people's homes and talking to them about their lives and seeing the way that they lived. And so I had experiences of, it was, you know, it was an anthropological kind of role and I was able to to see these things in action and, and talk to people about what brought them joy in the context of all the other work I was doing. 
Yeah, so Mike, Jeff, and I are well acquainted with IDEO, but for listeners who might need to know a little bit more, what would you say the fundamental mission of the of the organization is? So IDEO's mission is to create change through design. And, um, it, you know, IDEO began as a, a company that designed things that make a noise when you drop them. That's what we always say. So uh, <laughs> it's things like um, the first Apple mouse, um, many medical devices, the first laptop computer. All of these were things that were designed by IDEO. And um, over time, IDEO began to use a method. One of the, the early methodologies that was so successful for IDEO was the method of prototyping and making um things real and making them tangible very quickly as a way to get feedback and understand um, how they fit into people's lives. And so over time, IDEO began to use that method to address all kinds of other problems, problems like how to design an entire school system in Peru, how to design hospital emergency rooms um, so that they could be more effective. Um, So uh, and now, you know, things like designing brands or designing service ecosystems. So all of those things um, are, uh, you know, different ways that IDEO works to achieve this mission of, of really creating change through design. All right, one more for me, and then I'm going to pass, pass along to Jeff. What was your most joyful project at IDEO? Well... I have to say that I I had the good fortune to be able to work on a very conceptual project while I was at IDEO, and it was a project to redesign the idea of Monday. (laughs) And so, of course, Monday is something that we dread. It's, you know, we we have all the freedom and the joy of the weekend, and then, you know, even if we love our jobs, it's still hard to come back into the office on a Monday. And so uh, one of the things we designed, a, a number of conceptual products, but one of the things that we designed that's still to this day one of my favorites is um, it's a, a product called Notify. And the idea is that we always find out about the things that we have to do through these sort of beeping notifications. We're subject, you know, we have none of that on the weekends. And then all of a sudden we get back into the office and it's just notifications all the time. And so we thought, wouldn't it be great if you could have a notification that um, was a bubble? (laughs) So it's just a device that sits on your desk. And anytime you have an appointment, um, it lets you know by sending up one really perfect bubble. And, <laughs> That's great. You know, because the office is so serious. And wouldn't that just be so great to see a bubble floating out? And that's how, you know, you know, people are, are doing their jobs. So you see all these bubbles floating up into the air. And I thought that would be a much more joyful way to know that it's time to leave your desk and the serious focus work you're doing to go do something else. So great. <laughs> All right, Jeff, follow that one. <laughs> I'm, I'm having this image of being surrounded and coated by bubbles. Because yes. I have so many things I'm being notified <laughs> I need to do. I'm, exactly. I'm, I'm personally joyous already. Yeah, yeah, right? Like Mike would just be standing there with like just blowing bubbles at me. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but uh, which, which uh, somehow unbelievably actually leads to a... a, a more serious question, um, Ingrid. I, I I wonder how you know the the design principles that you describe here. How do they intersect with you know kind of the ideas of um, I'm trying to think of what what the opposite of clutter is, right? But like tidiness and clutter and and focus. Um, and, and I'm thinking a little bit about sort of like the Conmarie, you know principles of of organizing your life um i I thought you were thinking about your desk and my desk (laughs) easy i I organized half my desk and i only look at that half that's the half i look at right now it looks great yeah if i had bubbles right now you'd be in trouble (laughs) ingrid i'm sorry my colleagues are incorrigible (laughs) (laughs) this is true yeah Although, at the moment, very joyful. Yes. Very joyful. Very mirthful. <laughs> and Jeff is a mirthful leader, I must say. I know. Okay, so I, I think I know what you're you're asking, and I, I would say that um, I think that they are actually pretty compatible. So in the book, in the chapter on harmony, I talk a lot about 
ideas of symmetry, yeah. um, balance, <coughs> and bringing order. And the way that um, what I find so interesting about order is the way that it enables flow. So if we think about flow as this ideal state that we hope to reach, order is often a way of achieving flow. And one of the places that I saw this most clearly um, was in learning about a practice called knolling. And knolling is a practice that originated in uh, Frank Gehry's furniture workshop. Um, they were working on a project for the, the furniture company Knoll, and there was a a janitor who every night would go around and take people's tools and align them at right angles on their desks. And mm. so people would come back every morning and find these perfect um, gridded arrangements of their tools. And I think what's so, you know, and it became a, a, a source of joy for them and a source of beauty. And it, it later became picked up by the artist Tom Sachs in his workshop. And he's the one who really popularized it. But knowing, you know, you, you see it now, um, flat lays on Instagram are basically knolling. It's the same premise. Um, but the idea is that, you know, they, they enable good workflow. And it's the same thing with mise en place in a kitchen. You know, you set up a beautiful mm. mise en place. It looks so beautiful to the eye to see all the ingredients cut up and set up and ready to go. But it enables really good flow. If you don't actually set up in that way and it's not all orderly, then you have a really messy cook, you know, and you have a really messy um, <laughs> experience and, and, and things often go wrong in your, in your recipe. And so um, the idea of, I think, creating order, you know, we have in our minds a, a preference for symmetry, a preference for balance. These are innate preferences. Um, we also, there are also all sorts of gestalt principles that dictate, for example, when we see things really arranged in an orderly way, often it, it helps us see them as a group. Um, and so we get this little aha moment when our brains see that, that sense of symmetry or order. So all of those things, I think, do help um, our flow, whether it's our workflow or just the, the daily flow of our lives. And there is a joy to that. Mm. That was a um, better answer <laughs> Than question. <laughs> it was a great answer. That was an incredible. Thank you, Ingrid. Thank you, you, Ingrid. you answered the question I was unable to ask. <laughs> Let's just say it was a well-designed answer. Going. It was. <laughs> so good. And may I also point out that Ingrid is a Princeton grad and English major as well. <laughs> and claims everyone is an English major, just so you know. Everybody who comes on the show. Yeah, so. Very good. All right. We'll be sending you your Team and t-shirt. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, Ingrid, I'm really sorry that the time has gone so fast and that we're coming to a close here. So, But I want to make sure that you get a chance to tell our listeners about how they can find out more about your book and also about your website. Yes, so you can find me at aestheticsofjoy.com. And um, my book, you can find it pretty much everywhere books are sold, um, your local indie bookstore or um, any of the online bookstores as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'd love it if you check it out. Okay. Well, thank you again. We really enjoyed. And uh, I think it's fair to say we found a lot of joy in our conversation with you tonight. Indeed. Like, thank you, Ingrid. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks, Ingrid. Thanks so much. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.